Well, if you have your Bibles, please open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This year in Foundations, we're going to be looking at the priority of love in the family. And we're going to do this primarily by exploring the 16 different aspects of love that are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 8. So we are going to be in this chapter for the next several months, really the rest of this year until May. Um, tonight, we are going to introduce this year's study by looking at the priority of love, particularly in the family specific from verses 1 to 3. Because I'm sure that you are like me. And you're here because you desire to honor God in your family. You desire to proclaim Christ to your kids and install wisdom and a heart that loves the Lord into the heart of your children as much as it depends on you. You also desire as a husband to shepherd your wife, to help her grow in holiness, present her to Christ as holy and blameless with no spot or wrinkle of sin. And I hope you as a wife desire to honor Christ in your marriage by honoring and respecting and submitting to your husband. Now those are all good things. I hope we all desire those things, but sometimes we can prioritize the deeds and the actions and the results over the bigger picture of love. We want those things for our kids so bad. We want them for our marriage so much that we prioritize the deeds and the actions over what Christ would have us prioritize, and that is love in our families. And so Paul teaches in these passages that your motivation matters. The motivation for why you do what you do in your home matters. And hopefully this study will help reset us, if we need a reset, on the priority of love in your home. Now a little bit of background on Corinth. Raising your family in first century Corinth would not have been unlike raising a family today, actually. Because like them... As a parent, you are laboring to bring your children up in the training and admonition or discipline of the Lord. That was their goal, and that is your goal. They would have done that in a very worldly environment just like you because the culture there in Corinth was not unlike the culture that we are trying to raise our kids in today. Inundated with worldliness at every turn, wickedness, and sin. And life in Corinth was that as well. In fact, Corinthian was used throughout the Roman Empire as a synonym for moral corruption. And we get just a small taste of these sins that they were dealing, dealing with there in Corinth in chapter 6, verse 9, where Paul gives a representative sample of the sins that they were dealing with and that they had come out of, those that were in the church. And it includes fornication, idolatry, adultery, effeminism, including transvesticism and gender perversion, sound familiar, homosexuality, theft, covetousness, drunkenness, reviling, swindlers, and lies. That's just a representative sample of what you would have had to wade through the debauchery there in Corinth if you were wanting to bring your kids up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And the church there in Corinth that was started by Paul began in about 52 A.D., it was started during his second missionary journey. You can read about it, that missionary journey in Acts verse 16 to 18. On that journey, he planted a church in Philippi. Then he moved to Thessalonica. Then he moved to Berea. He preached in Athens. And then he went on to Corinth. And in Corinth, he stayed for about 18 months 
longer than anywhere else, and he developed a great love for these people, people that he considered to be his spiritual children. And so he looked at the church, and he saw the division and the sin that they were going through, and it broke his heart. And so he wrote this letter as a correction and condemnation, which is the theme of this book, correction and condemnation. So in much the same way that you desire to train and admonish your children, Paul is writing a letter to correct and condemn them of what they were doing wrong. And it's very interesting because we read in this book that their doctrine was right. They had the right doctrine. They lacked nothing regarding spiritual gifts, and yet they struggled. The folks knew the truth. They had been blessed with a full complement of gifts, and yet they still had sin rampant in their church. 1 Corinthians 11.2 says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything, and you hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. I taught you, you listened, and you are, have held on to those truths. They had the right doctrine. 1 Corinthians 1.7 says, The testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. I know, Paul says, that you are believers. And he goes on to say, So that you are not lacking any gift. Correct doctrine. Full complement of spiritual gifts. And in the context here regarding these spiritual gifts, is, uh, that is the context here in chapter 13. They knew the doctrine. They had the gifts, but they were using them for the wrong motives. They were using them for selfish gain, not out of love. And so they had developed into a strife-filled, divisive, selfish group that struggled to divorce themselves from the sin of the world, struggled to detach themselves from those around them, more concerned about what others thought of them than what Christ thought of them, not concerned about Christ's love puffed up with pride at their deeds and not loving their brothers and their sisters. And so, how do we, as leaders in our homes, how do we keep from falling into this same pitfall? Filled with knowledge, correct doctrine, memorizing the verses, doing the family devotions, filling your schedule with church activities, all of those things are good, using your gifts and talents that God has given you but if you're not careful, you could be doing all the right things for the wrong reasons and the wrong motivations in a love-starved home. And so Paul told the Corinthians who were struggling with this, this selfish ambition of these gifts, he says, if you look one verse up in 1231, Paul told, told the Corinthians that they were earnestly seeking the greater gifts. That's not a command to do this, but a statement of fact. You are doing this earnestly desiring these things, striving intensely, exerting yourselves, devoting yourselves to getting these gifts. And he says, I will show you a more excellent way. Instead of seeking more gifts, more recognition, motivated by pride and selfishness, I will show you a more excellent way. And that way is love. So the question I have for you and that you need to ask yourselves, what do you earnestly desire for your children? For your marriage? for your home. Then ask yourself, what is your motivation to get those things? Because the motivation and the purpose that drives you matters. And Paul says there's a more excellent way than selfish ambition. And it is love. For us, bringing up your children in, in the training 
an admonition of the Lord, being godly parents, exhorting your spouse to Christ-likeness, working towards those goals, fueled not by your selfish pride, but fueled by your love for Christ. Your love for others and your love for Christ is what will sustain you through the hard times. So you should be kind to your spouse, first and foremost, because you love your king. You love Christ. You endure the long, sleepless nights with your children with patience because you're motivated by the love that you have for Jesus. Now, you'll remember in John 21, Jesus told Peter to tend my lambs. But three times, he also asked him a question. He said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he said, then tend my lambs. When things get hard, Peter, and you're tempted to deny me again, remember your motivation. Remember your love for me. And parents, when things get hard and the nights get long, start with the question, do you love Jesus? Because your motivation to love your spouse has to come from that. If your motivation to love your spouse comes from them, then ultimately your love will not endure because, let's be honest, he's just not that lovable. There will be tensions and disagreements and sins that you'll have to endure. But the family motivated by love for Christ, following the more excellent way, dedicated to love, motivated by love for Christ, will persist and not fall away because love never fails and love always endures. So we have to keep the main thing the main thing. We have to prioritize love in your homes. And you might be here finding, your, finding it hard to forgive your spouse of something they've done. Maybe you're growing in frustration and impatience and anger with your kids because they're not doing what you say when you say it with a happy heart like the book said they're supposed to. And so-and-so's kids never do that. And what is everybody going to think of me? Well, maybe, perhaps, your priorities are a little out of whack. And you and me need to remember to prioritize love in our families. And so here in 1 Corinthians 3, 13, 1 through 3, Paul gives us three illustrations that teach that love must be your motivation or all your efforts are in vain. He gives three illustrations that teach that love must be your motivation or all your efforts are in vain. And here, Paul tells the Corinthians that the effectiveness of all these flashy, important spiritual gifts depends on your practice of love. And for us, the effectiveness of our parenting, the effectiveness of your marriage depends on your practice of love. And Paul lays these out in three kind of if-them hyperbolic statements. That's a new word for me, hyperbolic. It's fun to say. Hyperbole is an exaggerated sta statement meant to prove a point. It's intentionally outlandish statement so that you get the gist of what I'm saying, right? So if I said, I have a million things to do today, it doesn't mean that I truly have a million things. It means I'm overwhelmed with stuff that I have to do. Maybe your kids have said they have a ton of homework to do. Or you've told your kids I've, that I've told you a thousand times to clean your room. That's hyperbole. Except maybe that last one, maybe that one's true. You actually have told your kids a thousand times to clean the room. And so Paul employs this way of arguing hyperbole to let the Corinthians know that in order to thrive, in order to have success in your church, 
And success meaning love for Christ and bringing glory to God and not yourself. Love needs to drive every aspect of your interactions with one another. What you say, what you know, and what you do. And so he says here in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 to 3, he says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So let's look at this first illustration, which teaches us here in verse 1, that the, priori- the priority of love in what you say. The priority of love in what you say. And in all of these, Paul is using these spiritual gifts to prove a greater point. And first he uses the gift of tongues and prophecies, the speaking gifts, to make this point. Because the Greeks, and in particular the Corinthians, were obsessed with impressive speech. The church, which was made up of Corinthians, was then intrigued by these new gifts, these speaking gifts of tongues and prophecy. And you read through 1 Corinthians and you realize how highly they prized these speaking gifts. So there were Christians and then there were Christians that spoke in tongues and prophecy. Right? There were JV Christians and then there were varsity Christians in the church of Corinth. And so Paul starts here with these speaking gifts of tongues and prophecies. And he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, the gift of prophecy was speaking a known language that the speaker did not have to previously learn. Um, the word used for tongues is just the Greek word for language. And we have translated it tongues because back when the King James Version of the Bible was written, that's how people spoke. You speak the English tongue or the French tongue. And so it's just been translated tongue, but it just means language. Now this was a very important gift, but it was temporary. It was a temporary sign gift used to proclaim the gospel, used to proclaim God's message in foreign lands and to authenticate the messenger. And you can just imagine how helpful this would be as kind of a kickstart to the church in the first century. These apostles and the people with these gifts would go out to churches and they wouldn't have to spend the years that it would took to learn these languages, but the gift of tongues would give them the, oper- the ability to speak this native language. And then when they showed up and they could speak this language, it authenticated the message that they were saying. It was like rocket fuel to the church, and, that's, and it spread very quickly. And so Paul says, if you have this gift of tongues, the tongues of men, this gift that you love so much that you can speak human languages that you haven't had to learn, if you have the gift of tongues of men and of angels, this and of j- angels is not teaching that there is an angelic language, a language that only angels have. Anytime we see angels speak in Scripture, they always use a human language. So this is not teaching that there's an angelic language or an angelic prayer or some sort of prayer language that you can have. It's not teaching that you can speak the tongues of angels, also known as gibberish, if you go to a charismatic church. It's got nothing to do with that. Remember, these are examples given by Paul that are hypothetical exaggerations to prove a point. So he's saying if you have this great gift and you're as eloquent as an angel, but you don't have love, It's worthless. It means nothing. Then he mentions another speaking gift in verse 2. He says, and if I have the gift of prophecy. 
Again, the gift of prophecy in the first century was absolutely vital and important to the church. A prophet spoke the word of God. It means to speak forth divine will or pur- purpose. Chapter 14 highlights the importance of prophecy. And in the New Testament church, before the New Testament was written, first century, a local church would have a prophet that would proclaim and preach the word of God as the canon was currently being written. And then this gift passed away when the canon was completed. The New Testament was done. There was no more need for prophets that could then um, utter new revelation because we have all that we need in God's word. So you see, Paul is not downplaying the significance of these gifts. They're good, and they're very crucial to the first century church's operation. But they were exercising them in a selfish way. They were not motivated by love. So if you have this highly prized gift of tongues, and you can speak it so eloquently, and you have prophetic powers, but you don't have love, it's no different than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Just a bunch of irritating, loud and worthless noise or a noisy gong or worse than worthless a clanging symbol a symbol was used in pagan ritual there in Corinth so he's saying if you're not exercising these gifts with love you're part of the problem because it's no different than a pagan ritual you're leading people astray with your shrill tones the screech of an unoiled wine press which is what this clanging means Perhaps you might recognize the scratch of your child learning to play the violin. That is the clanging symbol. And Paul says that the exercise of your God-given spiritual gifts that's vital to the church is worthless if it's exercised with selfishness. They were impressed, but Paul was not because the loveless person produces nothing. The loveless person produces nothing. Paul's next example teaches the priority of love and the things that you know. Verse 2 says, And if I have all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. The Corinthians were obsessed with impressive speech, and they were obsessed with logic and rhetoric and excellence when it came to what you know and how well you can express it. So the celebrities of the day were the philosophers and the rhetoricians. Rhetoricians, yes, another word I just learned. So in, in place of the Patrick Mahomes and the LeBron James and the singer du jour, whoever that is today, right? In, front, in place of those celebrities, you had Epicurus and Diogenes and Zeno and the Cynics and the Stoicism and these celebrity philosophers that would duke it out in the battlefield of, of ideas. And Paul says something good like knowledge, and he, ra- he takes it and he ratchets it up to the nth degree, something that they think is so important, and he says, you might be impressed by this, but without love, God is not impressed. Now you'll notice that all three of these use the word all, which is kind of key to understanding this as a hypothetical um, exaggeration. He says all mysteries, all knowledge, and all faith. Of course, the word all means the whole thing the totality of everything down to its individual components. And that's what they had. He says, if I have all mysteries. In scripture, a mystery is the private counsel of God. Things beyond what he's written in scripture and beyond what we can see in the known universe. 
And Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that those secret things, those mysteries belong to God. But not to this guy. This guy has all the mysteries. He knows everything. He has the mind of God. Something that these people would have loved to have. So he has all mysteries and he has all knowledge. Again, a reference to a gift of knowledge. Except this person has all knowledge. He has full understanding of the revealed facts of Scripture and the known universe. There's nothing outside of what he knows because he knows it all. He has all full comprehension of revealed knowledge, complete and total understanding of even the secret things that belong to the Lord. And this guy also has all faith. So, so much faith to, uh, so as to remove mountains. Paul borrows Jesus' extreme example that you find in Matthew 17, 20, where Jesus says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So this is the spiritual gift of faith, a special gift that the Spirit provides to Christians that give them extraordinary confidence in God. Extraordinary confidence in his promises and his power and his presence so that they can do great things for the church. Very important and good gift. So knowledge and faith are not bad. Of course they're not. In fact, the Bible puts a premium on knowledge. You're not supposed to stay ignorant. Knowledge is a good thing. You must know the truth to be saved. There are certain components that you must know to be saved. Paul prayed that the uh, Philippians would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. But knowledge without love will turn you into a legalistic Pharisee. And so Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 8 that knowledge makes you arrogant, but love edifies. So if your knowledge in your home without, is exercised without love, you may be turning into an arrogant, legalistic Pharisee. You don't want to do that. So you must be motivated by love and the things that you know in your family. The gift of faith is also good. A great gift. A gift that allows for making the impossible possible. Jesus said if you have a little faith, you can move a mountain. And this is all faith. How much more can you do with all faith? But Paul says that without love, it's worthless. Actually, he says, it's not nothing. I am nothing. Literally, you're a nobody. So the first example, the fruit of your gift was nothing. Here, the person that is acting, using these good spiritual gifts in a selfish way is a nobody, a nothing. You might think you're special, but without love, you're a nobody because the loveless person is nothing. They produce nothing and they are nothing. So we must prioritize love through what we say and what we know, and finally, what we do. And these are the gifts of giving and service. Verse 3, Paul says, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. So we, we've learned that these gifts are important. And here are the gifts of service and giving, good deeds, even to the point of martyrdom, without love, are nothing. Again, it's not that giving to the poor is bad. It's good. It's, it's commanded in Scripture. 
but it has no benefit spiritually if done outside of your love for Christ and your love for others or done with the wrong motives. One example of this is the Mormon church. You could call it the LDS cult. Last year in 2022, they gave $1 billion with a B to 3,692 humanitarian projects in 190 countries. They're working hard. They're giving a lot of money. 190 countries. There's only 195 countries in the world. And they got to 190 of them, which I feel kind of sorry for the five that missed out. <laughs> actually, I don't because they didn't get the, the kids on the bikes. So that's actually a good thing. But their motive was not love for Christ, but rather their motive was love for self. And so they publicize it, make sure everybody knows so they get a good pat on the back. So Paul says that profits you nothing. It's interesting here, the word forgive doesn't mean kind of a flash-in-the-pan emotional sacrifice. Remember, we were growing up. One time we were watching, my mom actually woke us up late at night. And she was crying, and she brought us into the TV because there was this show on, this infomercial thing with all of these kids in Africa who were starving. And we're all crying, and, you know, it was a, it was a big, big deal. And so I think we gave some money right? Because we were emotionally tied to that. It was kind of a flash in the pan thing. And the next morning, I totally forgot about it, right? That's not what this is saying. Not an emotional, sacrificial giving where you empty your piggy bank. This is a measured, informed, calculated decision to give away all that you possess. This guy has the gift of giving on steroids. So the rabbi said, you were never obligated to give more than 20%. And this, this person with this gift, Paul says, if I did the unthinkably charitable thing without love, it gains me nothing. And last, he ships, shifts to service and sacrifice. He sa says, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Perseverance, self-sacrifice, even to the point of being burned at the stake for the gospel, not motivated by love, is nothing amazingly some christians of the early church actually sought after martyrdom okay here's one account in 185 the proconsul of asia his name was arius antonius something like that was approached by a group of christians demanding to be executed and the proconsul obliged some of them and then sent the rest of the way away saying if they wanted to kill themselves, there's plenty of rope available or cliffs they could jump off of. Those people were giving themselves to be burned and they can expect no eternal reward for the deed done from a selfish motivation. So they can go in the annals as these great people who were martyred, not motivated by love, but by selfish ambition. So no, no matter how much you suffer, how much service you give to the church, it gains you nothing if your ministry and your sacrifice are motivated by selfishness because the loveless worker gains nothing. The loveless worker gains nothing. So you can see the picture painted here, right? I don't have to belabor the point anymore. If you could have every gift, you could do it all, you could know it all, you have all the gifts to their greatest measure. If you don't have love, everything you accomplish with those gifts, everything you say and everything you know is worthless and nothing. So we kind of looked at the hyperbole there in Corinth. And they were obsessed with these gifts. And maybe 
you know, it's not hitting home for you because these gifts have passed away and you're thinking this doesn't have anything to do with us. But this is just kind of a representative. It's representative of a larger principle. So what, my friends, is your motivation in your home, in your interaction with your kids, in your relationship with your spouse? Are you obsessed with excellence and crazed over presenting the perfect family, the perfect marriage? We could say it this way. If your kids could speak all the Awana verses, the, award, the Awana book done before Christmas and the Timothy Award in the bag by fourth grade, if you did family devotions every morning, you took first place ribbon at the talent shows, crushed the science fair projects, dual credit classes in eighth grade, if you never had a dirty dish in the sink, and every birthday party and anniversary you backed the truck up. If you're at the church wh whenever it's open and you are there using your gifts, your kids take outlined notes at church and never ever have to leave the church, leave the sermon to go to the bathroom. <laughs> you could have it all. Insert your perfect picture of the family. You've got it all, but without love, everything you say is an irritating noise. Without love, the information you know and the knowledge you painstakingly try to invent ways to get into your kid's head. Without love, it's worthless. If you don't have love, all the things you do day in and day out with your kids, spiritually, Paul says they mean nothing. Which, if your motivation is pride, that's crushing. It's crushing. It's everything that you do, all day, every day. The Corinthians were motivated by pride, and they had all these things. They are like, this is what I live for. I'm doing all of these good things. And Paul says, it's rubbish. It's nothing. It's worse than nothing. So what is your motivation? Because whether or not you are anything before God depends completely on the presence or absence of love. So all of those things we mentioned, I mean, I hope you're seeking after those things. Those are good things. But imagine just having a fraction of those in a family and a home that is bathed in love for Christ and bathed in love for one another to where it doesn't matter so much what other people think of me because I love my kids. I love Christ and I want to glorify him and honor him in every single thing I do, even when my kids fail even when my spouse sins against me. I can endure because I love Jesus. Now the last, or the word that we've repeated over and over again, probably a hundred times in the last half hour, is love. So last thing, what kind of love is this? And what does it look like in your day-to-day -day life in your family? Well, the second question, what this looks like in your day-to-day -day family is what we hope to kind of parcel out this year. How do we do this every day in our homes? As far as what kind of love this is, it's a very familiar kind of love if you've grown up in the church. It's agape love. Agape, I don't have to tell you, but it is a very rare word in Greek literature. Almost never comes up in Greek literature, but it's everywhere in the New Testament, very common. It's common because this type of love, this agape love, is what should mark us as followers of Christ. 
It's how Jesus said that we would be recognized as his disciples if we have agape love for one another. John 1, 1 John 3.14, John says, We know that we have passed out of life into death. In other words, we know that we are believers because we have love, this agape love for the brethren. And he who does not have this love abides in death. So love is exemplified by Christ and it is expected of Christ's followers. And ultimately, it means unconditional, self-sacrificing love. Love not contingent upon the action of others or their reactions to what you do. Love that is not about feelings and emotions, but love that is unconditional and giving. So those are some definitions of agape love, but you know what the best definition of agape love is? It's verses 4 to 8, where Paul says, Love is patient. Love is kind and not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Agape love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked because it does not take into account a, rougher, an, a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, Agape love never fails. So my hope this year, as we study through these different aspects of love, is that we would learn the more excellent way. That we would learn how we can be more loving in our homes. That we can be self-sacrificing towards our spouse, towards our wife and our husband. How we can love our children unconditionally, regardless of their obedience, regardless of their respect, regardless of how they treat us. Our job is to love them. Ultimately, that we would learn how to prioritize love in our home, in every aspect, what we say, what we think, and what we do. Let's pray. Lord, you are so great. Thank you for showing us this perfect love. Lord, you showed this. You lived this for us. It is written in Scripture. Lord, I pray that we as leaders of our home would search the scriptures to know how we can do this better. Lord, that we would that you would empower us to love our wives and love our families and our children so that we can honor you and glorify you in everything that we do. In Jesus' name. Amen.